several years ago, CBS anchorman and reporter by the name of Hugh Rudd was mugged outside, just outside his New York City apartment complex. He was beaten, knocked down, but he remained conscious, eyes open, but unable to move. He was right next to his doorstep, but all he could do was moan. Hours later, after being rescued, he recounted the frightening scene where he he lay there watching people walk past him, ignoring his moans for help. He, He said that even the milkman came, dropped off the milk right next to him and left, and no one stopped to see what was wrong until hours later. I read of a more recent incident where a woman had fallen down unconscious in a convenience store. The video cameras caught the scene as she lay there in the aisle, unconscious, recorded people actually stepping over her to get their food items without bending down to see if she needed help, if she was even alive. Only this month, one television network reported on a staff member at an assisted living facility who refused to perform CPR on one of the residents who'd had a heart attack. Uh, When the woman collapsed at her table in the dining room, another resident called 911, and during that return phone call, the dispatcher would end up spending several minutes trying to convince that staff member to do something to help this woman, even though it went against a stated policy of, of, the, of the home of not providing medical assistance, a policy that under inspection they came to, to realize it had nothing to do with prohibiting emergency help such as CPR. The phone transcript was released, which I read. The dispatcher is saying, I understand if your boss is telling you you can't do anything, but, but as a human being, you know, Is there anybody that's willing to help this lady and not let her die? And the chilling response, not at this time. I found it interesting, and this kind of set me off on a little study. I thank God for Google. Just about every state in our country has grappled with this this issue, and many states have created what they call Good Samaritan Laws. All kinds of laws. In fact, they can be somewhat confusing. Some seem to protect the victim from being helped or maybe mishandled by a good Samaritan who comes along to help. Other laws try to enforce people to act the part of a good Samaritan. For instance, I found that the state of Vermont's good Samaritan law actually fines a person $100 if it's clear they could have stepped in to help but refused. The concept of a, of a good Samaritan law, as you well know, comes directly out of the Bible, doesn't it? And more specifically, it comes from an encounter Jesus had with, ironically, a lawyer. Let me show you that question and answer session in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 Verse 25, 
And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, stop for a moment. This man was, uh, the Greek word is nomikos. That means he was a scribal expert in the interpretation of the Mosaic law, you know, with all the rabbinical traditions that had been formed over the centuries. So this legal expert is coming along and he's going to trip Jesus up in, in some minutia of, of the law or the tradition. The problem is he asks here a theological question instead. You notice, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus could have immediately pinned his hide to the wall by saying, you don't do anything to inherit something. Right? An inheritance is received, not earned. Now, obviously, this lawyer wants to focus on some legal aspect of human responsibility. He's not really interested in eternal life. He's interested in legal life. And I think he's expecting Jesus to respond with something like, well, keep the law, keep the ceremony, you know, be a good Jewish person, and and you're in. To which the lawyer could then respond with, well, in that case, what are you doing breaking the laws and the ceremonies and ordinances of our fathers? I mean, you travel on the Sabbath, you pluck grain on the Sabbath, you don't wash your hands according to ceremonial law uh, and all sorts of misdemeanors. And he could have trapped the Lord. Instead, Jesus sidesteps the trap and basically says in verse 26, okay, if you want to talk about the law, why don't you just tell me, how do you see it? Summarize it for me. And the lawyer quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Great text. The Jews considered, as we do today, the heart as the center of emotions and desires, the soul as the place or the seat of personality, strength as the place of your will, and mind, the mind, as the center of your intellect. In other words, the greatest part of the law is that you love God with everything you've got. That's the point. And then the lawyer goes one step further, notice, and he adds, this is from Leviticus 19, verse 18, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, A plus on the pop quiz, you nailed it. Now go and do that, and you're in. Which really translated means you got the right answer on the quiz, but you know you can't love God with that kind of perfection, and you surely don't love your neighbor with that kind of wholehearted, self-sacrificing, all-incorporating with mind, soul, strength, and heart love. Now, do you? And now the lawyer's stuck. Now, he could say, I am loving God like that, and there would be no way to check, right? But he can't say, I'm loving my neighbor like that because Jesus can just go knock on their door and find out. So the lawyer knows that he's gone too far in adding to what we call the Shema, the great Jewish prayer from Deuteronomy, by adding that last phrase. And he's probably thinking to himself right about now, man, why did I add that part about loving my neighbor? 
Because now I'm accountable. You can check it out and find out. So now he's trapped. So what he does is he begins to parse words like a good lawyer. And he asks Jesus in verse 29, define for me neighbor. This is his only possible loophole. See, by the time of Christ, many of the Jewish rabbis were defining a neighbor as another Jew in good standing. and This allowed them to ignore or mistreat anybody else. Now, he's hoping Jesus will answer that way. Well, your neighbor, just as the rabbis have taught for years, is another Jew in good standing. And when that, the lawyer, the lawyer could say, well, I am doing that, and I've got some good Jewish buddies who will vouch for me, and he's off the hook. But Jesus doesn't respond with that, does he? Instead, he doesn't even answer the question. He begins to tell a story, and in this story, he radically redefines who a neighbor is and what it looks like to demonstrate love. Now, before we race to this road leading to Jericho, let me tell you that what Jesus is going to do is introduce four characters in his storyline. And what he says about each one of them is going to be significant as we arrive at the punchline. The first character is on a road that we could call tragedy. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he, he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, you notice this character is completely anonymous. His name, his age, his occupation, even his race are not provided, although we imply from the way it progresses that he's a Jewish man. But that anonymity kind of allows us all to enter in and and uh, feel sorry for him, and maybe even identify with him, we're immediately moved, obviously, by the brutality of this, this scene. The truth is, everybody listening to Jesus at this point would know immediately what he's talking about, because this road was in the news almost every single day. The road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles long. It dropped in elevation more than 3,000 feet. You were literally going down to Jericho. And it was the perfect road for thieves and bandits to hide out in and rob travelers. It narrowed between hillsides. It turned sharply in, in, in different directions. It would have places where rocky uh, hillsides could, could provide easy escape for these robbers. But furthermore, we know from history that Herod had rebuilt Jericho and turned it into an oasis resort for the wealthy and the well-connected. In fact, he'd built three palaces there, as if one wasn't enough. He had swimming pools and sunken gardens. Government officials, religious and political leaders, along with uh, uh, the wealthy upper class, would often go to that resort area from Jerusalem and and rest. So it was the perfect place to hijack a caravan of rich people. In fact, so many people were injured, robbed, or killed on this 18-mile stretch of road that when Jesus was telling this story, they had already nicknamed this road the Bloody Way. 
So people listening to Jesus would have probably muttered, you know, to themselves something like, you know, this guy has nobody to blame but himself. What's he doing traveling alone on the bloody way? The second character now appears. While the victim traveled a road we could call tragedy, this man is traveling on a road we could call ceremony. Verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, at this point, the crowd listening in, along with the lawyer, probably gets a little bit of a jolt of surprise. They would have thought that the priest would set the example of love and compassion. Priests were sort of the paragon of virtue in this generation. And Jesus is going to make the point. You know, we all need to be more like professional clergy. But the text says, when he saw him, he passes by on the other side. That is, he changes lanes. And he gets as far away as fast as he can from this man. Why? We're not told. But a little digging might help us understand. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 informs us that any Jew living during these Old Testament times who touched a dead body or blood would be automatically unclean for seven days. Now, Bible scholars point out the fact that since Jericho had the largest population of priests living outside of Jerusalem during the days of Christ, that this priest was more than likely returning home from spending a tour of duty, as it were, in the temple. Maybe he's going home briefly and he's coming back. But what you have is you have a man who, who is wanting to serve, but now he faces the, the potential of ceremonial uncleanness. But he's just come from serving God and you know representing God to the people and the people before God. I mean, to put it into our context, he's just, you know, come from church. He's, uh, he's just sung the hymns of the faith and worship with the saints. I mean, to be even more specific, he's just preached three times on Sunday morning and he's rushing home to take a nap before the service on Sunday night and he needs that nap and hopefully nobody will bother him. Howard Hendricks told us in class about one seminary assignment where the students were told they would discuss the Good Samaritan text the following day in class. Unbeknownst to them, the professor had another student lined up, dressed in rags, to lie down on the sidewalk the students would travel on the next morning in in, in a purposefully awkward position, moaning as if in great pain. Not one student stopped to check as they went on to class to study the text of the Good Samaritan. Now, to this priest's defense, he didn't want to become unclean. He didn't want to have to sit the bench for seven days. For him, it was an issue of ceremony, and he chose ceremony over sympathy. But then again, We don't know for sure, but it occurred to me as I studied this story that maybe he thought to himself that he would just leave the task to his assistant, the Levite, whom he may very well have known was traveling a short distance behind him. That's exactly the next character who makes an appearance on the bloody way. We could say that the Levite is traveling on the road 
called safety. Look at verse 32. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the audience listening to Jesus would have expected the Levite to stop and help the man. He had a lot less ceremony to be worried about. While the priests directly offered the sacrifices to God, the Levites simply provided uh, music or assistance to the priests. The priests served God. The Levites served the priests. The priests oversaw the management of the temple complex The Levites served as the maintenance crew. I mean, surely the the Levite's going to get his hands dirty. He's going to jump in here. He's going to carry out the spirit of the law. And he's going to help this blood-caked, half-dead man. That's what they would have expected. In fact, the language in the text gives us the sense that he actually went close to the man. And he looked carefully. He must have stood there a moment or two deciding what to do. Thieves are known to use decoys. Maybe they were waiting nearby to see if anybody with money or medicine would stop to help. I mean, they'd become an easy target for the next crime. So no doubt the Levite, he's looking around while he stops. He's looking at the man. He's looking around. He's thinking, am I going to get out of here alive? Maybe I shouldn't even stop. And then he evidently concludes it isn't worth it to take the risk. Besides, they've they've nearly killed one man. They could just as easily do it to me. Now, let me, let me pause for a little bit here. Let's make sure we don't downplay the danger here. We miss the point. The amazing thing in this story isn't that the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help. This is a dangerous road with killers and bandits afoot. I mean, the amazing thing is, is not that these two men didn't stop. The amazing thing is that somebody will. We can easily get caught up in the fact that, oh, these two guys didn't stop, but that's not really what Jesus is after. The amazing thing is that one man will. I remember when I was uh, in seminary in Detroit, Michigan, for a few years earning my first graduate degree, Detroit, Michigan, a city well known for safe streets and low crime. Anybody here from Detroit, Michigan? All right, a few, yes. Well, I spent three years of winter there. Glad to be here. My wife had gone to a seminary wives meeting one night. And on her way home, back to the apartment we rented, long after sunset, our old beat-up car broke down. She had even decided to take a quicker route home to a dangerous part of town when the car conked out and coasted underneath a railroad bridge without any streetlights nearby. I mean, it can't get any worse than that. And this is, of course, before cell phones had even been thought of, except I guess the Army was using them and they were that big. You can only imagine how afraid she was. She didn't know what to do. Suddenly, a, a, a car pulled up behind her, and a man got out and walked up to her window, which she rolled down about an inch, and he asked if he could help her. All she could safely do was give him our apartment phone number and ask him to call me and tell me she'd broken down. 
He said he'd be glad to. In fact, he was so polite, he even explained to Marcia that he was coming back from his own wedding rehearsal dinner and was getting married the next day and certainly wouldn't want his bride stranded on, on the side of the road. He then reminded Marcia that uh, she wasn't in a safe part of town. She knew that. <laughs> so he takes off to call me, hopefully she thinks. During that time, Marcia saw one more car coming her way. The car slowed down, but then to her relief, drove by. But it was a police car. But he didn't see her because when she saw lights coming, she ducked down in the front seat. (laughs) And a good Samaritan moment passed by. Uh, a few minutes later, this, this young guy returns, and he even brought Marcia a cup of coffee and promised that he'd wait in his car behind hers until help arrived. And Of course, you know, meanwhile, we didn't have two cars, so I, I called a seminary buddy and his wife, told him what the deal was, and, and they hopped in their car and went to pick her up. The, the problem was they traveled the normal route between the church and the apartment, not the road Marcia had taken, and they couldn't find her. At one point, he even made an illegal U-turn to try again, and when you know it, blue lights are flashing behind them. The Good Samaritan's going to get a ticket. (laughs) It's just not fair. He explained to the policeman, you know, he's looking for a woman in a car, and he described, you know, it's a a dark car with a Virginia license plate, and the policeman said, I know exactly where that car is. He was the same policeman that had passed her. So they all climbed in, you know, and went and found her, and we all lived happily ever (laughs) after. Now, I admire that young man. Frankly, uh, it's surprising that he would stop. I don't want us to be too hard on these two guys. They're on one of the most dangerous roads on the planet. The victim is traveling the road, and we could call it tragedy, the priest travels it, we could call it ceremony. The Levite is traveling on it, we could call it safety. But now Samaritan is about to appear, and he's traveling a road we could call mercy. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, it's a nice way of saying he had plans, he had things to do. He's on a journey, came upon him. Now stop here for just a moment. You need to understand that as soon as Jesus introduces this man into the parable, Everybody assumes the villain has just arrived, not the hero. In fact, one author commented that Jesus' audience would have expected the Samaritan to finish off what the bandits had started. If he wasn't dead already, it's curtains now. He's dead. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Their hatred had... um, had grown for centuries since their captivity. The northern tribe, if you know the history of the Samaritan race, had intermarried with their Assyrian captors. They had created sort of a half-breed nation. When the Jewish exiles returned from Babylon, who hadn't intermarried, they began to rebuild their temple under Ezra, and the Samaritans offered to help, and they said, no, you're not even going to help us. In fact, you can't get in once we build it. So the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim designed their own worship, 
their own system. The Jews would later destroy that temple, and uh, it inflamed this feud even more between them. By the time of Christ, when this is all happening here, this story is taking place, the Samaritans were pro-Roman. They received Roman benefits in return. Even one of Herod's ten wives was a Samaritan. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who didn't like Samaritans, said, retold the story about how during one Passover celebration, the Samaritans infiltrated the temple, they did, and deposited human bones throughout the premises, which effectively forced the priests to shut down the temple during Passover. In fact, of all the dirty names that the Jewish people could think of to call Jesus, one of the worst names they could come up with, and they called him it, was Samaritan. John eight forty eight. So, I, I want you to understand, as soon as Jesus says this, you know immediately this story is going to take an unexpected and it's going to take an explosive turn of events. Now notice verse 33 again. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. In other words, he, he, he gives him the best, most compassionate care possible. Wine to disinfect his wounds, oil and, and strips of cloth to 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 stay off or ward off infection, walking so the wounded man can ride, staying up with him through the night to care for him. Gives him the best care possible. Verse 35. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So in other words, he gives the innkeeper his visa number, right? He says, I want you to cover as much as two weeks' expenses. In fact, some scholars believe it might have covered up to two months, depending on the quality of the inn. Then he said to the innkeeper, "If, if the bill runs more than I've allotted, I'll sign for anything else when I return. So Jesus is presenting a case where this guy's love and grace is remarkable. I mean, nobody does this. Now at this time, Jesus turns to the lawyer, and I think by now the lawyer is terrified that Jesus is going to turn to him, and Jesus does. And he asks him one more question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? (laughs) I love this, verse 37. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. He can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't get it out. The one who showed mercy toward him. He's cornered. He can't say, well, the Samaritan. This has literally turned his world upside down. He's cornered. Jesus has radically expanded the definition of neighbor. And he's provided 
for us implicitly three different perspectives on how to live. The bandits lived with the perspective, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. The priest and the Levite lived with the perspective, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to protect it. The Samaritan lived with the perspective, what's mine is yours, and I'll give it away. That's a demonstration of Jesus Christ who gave himself in his death and sacrifice for us. There's a lot of other things I, I could make note and observation of, and I do want to do a couple of more statements or two related to observations. Did you catch the fact that in this parable all the travelers saw? If you have a pencil, you might circle that verb. They all saw him lying in the road. The priest saw him, verse 31. Verse 32, the Levite saw him. Verse 33, the Samaritan saw him. They all saw him. But only one man chose to really see. Love is not blind. Hatred is. Has it really occurred to us that the Christian is the only person on the planet whose eyes are really open? Or should be? I mean, you see the outcast and, and, and you become their friend. You see that discarded child and you become their mentor or maybe even their parent. You see that person going down a dangerous road and you warn them of what you see coming. You, you see someone burdened and you step in to offer encouragement. You, you see some understaffed area of ministry and, and, and you, because you see it, you volunteer to to serve. You see someone you know in need of help, and you offer tangible physical assistance. You see someone in need of the gospel, and you risk your time and your energy and maybe even your life to deliver it. And the love of God demonstrated through those who will see does not ask, what will happen to me? Or, what's in it for me? No. One more thing. As I study this parable, I've got to tell you, the Good Samaritan is presented as a model and as a goal, not for getting into the kingdom, but as children who belong to the kingdom. Though imperfectly, yet periodically, the Christian demonstrates the love of Christ by choosing to see and choosing to act with compassion and mercy and love. But I've got to I got to tell you this. I see Jesus here in this story. I don't know about you, but I'm not the Samaritan in this story. We're not even the religionists, you know, the ceremonialists here. Here's who we are. We are the robbed, beaten, half-dead individual. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. Stripped, lifeless, penniless, helpless, and Jesus came. 
Jesus came and saw us. Jesus had compassion on us. Jesus stooped to pick us up. Jesus heals us and cares for us and pays all the bills for us. And he even promises to come back again. Amen? And he will come. And he'll come back for those who recognize they are helpless and who depend upon him entirely for eternal life, for mercy and forgiveness and grace and healing and love and inclusion into the kingdom of God by his grace and mercy alone. And until he returns, we periodically reveal, far less than we should, that we belong to him by the way we choose to see and act with mercy and grace and forgiveness and sacrifice and courage and love in the name of and for the glory of our good Samaritan who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you Father for your word. Thank you for the the demonstration through an individual's life of that which reveals your love and your mercy and your grace. And you've called us to this standard. Lord, I pray after today our eyes will be open even more to the opportunities around us. And yet at the end of it, we have to simply acknowledge our failure and imperfections and our need and thank you, Lord, that you are our good Samaritan. You came to our road where we lay lifeless. You've given us life. You've healed us by those stripes upon your back. You've given us a promise even that you're coming back. And in the meantime, all the bills are already paid from your vast resources of grace and forgiveness. Cause us to demonstrate that to others. We pray it by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.